if you're an amateur disc golfer like me, then accuracy is probably something that you struggle with. Maybe it's a lot, maybe it's not. But in today's episode of the Chain Clinkers Disc Golf Podcast, we sit down with Andrew Presnell, who gives you the top five things you must do if you want to become a more accurate disc golfer. Let's get into it right now. What's up, everybody? It's Andrew Presnell here. And you are listening to the Chain Clankers Podcast. Welcome in, everybody, to the Chain Clankers Disc Golf Podcast, presented by Upper Park Disc Golf. They've got the best disc golf bags in the game right now. Some of our touring pros out there who've been on this podcast really enjoy their bags. And this is a company that actually cares about the sport. They care about bettering the sport. They're not just in it for profit. They are here to make the sport a better place and make you a better disc golf with their bags. You can get the rebel you can get the shift you can get the pinch pro it just depends on what level and how much you want to spend they have the perfect disc golf bag for you use promo code clinkers 10 at checkout to save 10 percent and support this podcast today we've got an exciting guest we've got andrew presnell joining us on the podcast he's off to a good start here in 2023 i'd say with two top 35 finishes on the year on the elite series andrew how are we doing tonight man uh we're doing pretty good you know thanks thanks for having me i'm excited to uh share my story with you and your audience and yeah thanks for having me yeah and so let's just kind of start with you know we're starting to really get into the season. I feel like when we hit Las Vegas, we then get a little break before we come to Waco. I feel like once we hit Waco, then we've got the open right after that, and then things just kind of keep going weekend after weekend. Is that kind of how it feels like for you? Are you ready to hit that full stride for the season or still kind of getting used to it? Definitely uh, ready to hit the full stride. I feel like every year with the Disc Golf Pro Tour, there's just more and more events back-to-back-to-back weekends, and you really don't get that uh, – that many breaks anymore and even when you do get those off weeks I'm kind of known for playing local events back home so I feel like I'm grinding more than the average touring pro out there you know I'm hitting anywhere from like 40 to 50 tournaments a year yeah, that's that's dang near every single weekend. So that this is someone who's dedicated to their craft and dedicated to their game. And Andrew, where where is kind of home for you? Where where do you mainly go yeah, to? Yeah, so I I was born in Springfield, Missouri, which is kind of southwest part of the state. I live in Ozark, Missouri currently, which is just south of Springfield. And yeah, I call Springfield area, but Ozark technically is the city that I live in. Nice. And you're going to have to forgive me, but how close is that to Table Rock? That's relatively close, isn't it? Yeah, Table Rock is in Branton, which is about 30 minutes south of my home. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah, we're we're based out of Kansas, so we're in Wichita, so five-ish hours, I want to say, away from there, give or take a little bit. And I remember going up to Table Rock and... Uh, for you know, summer trips and stuff like that with the fam. So definitely know what kind of neck of the woods you're in, and there's definitely some good disc golf there. We I know we've got a lot of Missouri listeners as well. And so kind of how did you first get into disc golf? Was this something that everyone around you was doing? Did someone kind of show you the game? How did it start for you? So my brother took myself and my dad out on Thanksgiving Day. I think it was 2012. Uh that was the first time I was ever introduced to disc golf, and you know it just kind of it kind of built from there as a a family activity that we get out and do a couple times a week, and 
just turned into me falling in love with the game and going out and practicing myself, you know, without anybody. And, you know, it, I'm always a competitive person. I like sports and, you know, it just gave me a new, uh, a new game to try out. And, you know, it's, it's just really fun once you, you know, actually start learning how to throw the disc well, you know, you can really, uh, really set new goals for yourself and, you know, see yourself develop in, in this sport. Yeah, absolutely. It's incredible to watch new players. The first round, I'm kind of doing this with some friends at work right now. The first round, kind of rough, you know, trying to understand how a disc feels in their hand and throw it. The second round, they cut their scores in half. I'm excited to get them out for the third round and just continue to watch that development. And what did that development look like for you? You know, were you one of those quick learners where, hey, within a couple of months, you're playing eight tiers in the MPO division? Or did it take a little bit of time for you to get better at disc golf. Yeah, it, I played for about two years just kind of casually by myself or with friends uh, before I ever tried out a league. Um, I was convinced to try out our local league after about two years of playing. And, you know, I, I don't remember how well I did, but I don't think I did very well. But I think just the, uh, you know, being competitive uh, is what drew me to it. Because I was a college athlete at the time when I got introduced to disc golf and, uh, my soccer career ended my senior year, I guess, 2013. And so, you know, I still wanted to be competitive in sports and stuff. And so this was kind of like a, a new avenue for me to go and, you know, challenge other players and be competitive in. And, uh, yeah, and so it. I think I started trying to compete once soccer was finished and I still had that competitive drive in me. So, yeah, that was, I think, my first tournament was 2014, which is about two years after I started. Started in the intermediate level, and I won my first intermediate tournament. And then I think I played maybe one more intermediate tournament before I moved up to advanced. And uh, I think I did maybe a handful of advanced tournaments before I won a couple. And then I just said, all right, I guess I'm going to go play open. Um, I kind of knew that I was like, kind of decent at the sport um because like I think when I won intermediate I might have shot well enough to like do really well in advanced so I was like okay maybe maybe I'm better than I think um but it did take some time I mean I remember not being able to hit you know 250 foot shot holes at my home course for probably over a year like you know it just uh it took some time and that's that's what I like telling new players I Anytime I take somebody new, I, I tell them, I'm going to make this look way too easy. And, you know, my my throwing is going to look effortless and you're not going to be able to get it at all. And that's fine. Like, if you go and you play like three or four times, you're going to notice a huge improvement than from your first round. Yeah, and I think that's really encouraging to hear, you know. We've talked to a lot of pros who are like, yeah, I could throw 450 on day two, and I was winning MPO tournaments within the first month, and it's like, oh, man, maybe there is no hope for any of us. But I think that's a really interesting journey for yourself and taking a little bit longer to get into the competitive nature. And once you kind of got into those leagues and tournaments, did you see your practice routines change? And did you see more of a progression in your game when that happened compared to when you were just taking it casually? There's a specific moment in my career where I decided I wanted to take this more seriously. I was, I graduated college and was working up in a school near Kansas city. 
and I'd have every weekend off and Kansas City runs a lot of tournaments and it was kind of like my beginning uh, part of when I started playing open events. And I remember I got like second place at a tournament in Kansas City in like a pretty deep field and I won like almost 400 bucks or something and I was just like, whoa, I just made $400 in one day playing disc golf and I was like, I distinctly remember like the switch going off. I was like, okay, like, I could probably make some money if I dedicate myself to this. And I think that's kind of when my, my practice routine really started to set in. I would, uh, I went to, or I worked in Warrensburg, Missouri, which is where central Missouri state is. Or wait, is that right? University central Missouri. And they had a, uh, turf field lit up, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week that I could go and throw. And I would go out there probably three or four nights a week, just practicing shots and then on the weekends, I'd make a trip to Kansas City and play all the good Kansas City courses. So really dedicated myself kind of that period of my disc golf journey. Yeah, and, and when you were working on those shots at that field, what were you mainly focusing on or maybe some drills you were doing? So that was that's back when I just wanted to throw as far as you can and not really care too much. So I was just like uh, practicing distance. Um, I would just be in one end zone and you had a, a, an entire turf field, you know, probably 370 feet, you know, if you include the end zones and stuff. And then there was tennis courts right behind it. And so my goal was always to make it over the tennis court fence somewhere in the tennis court. And, uh, I mean, that's kind of when I was just, uh, really practicing the distance. And I don't, I don't think, um, I really practiced accuracy too much, which I definitely noticed. Um, I used to love the long bomber courses, uh, but now I consider myself more of a uh, technical course player. Um, yeah, that's. I think that's just developed as I've gotten older. I'm almost 31 now, so definitely don't have the the flexibility and the uh, the distance like I used to when I was like you know 24. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can I can understand that. And, and so did you have people who came up to you while you were on this turf field and like, hey, what are you doing here? Or, or, or did you really not have any of that interaction? I, I had a couple buddies up there that would occasionally go to the field with me and practice. Uh, but for the most part, um, most of the time it was like late at night. And so not a lot of people would be out there. It'd be like maybe nine, nine thirty at night when I'd head out there and because I didn't want anybody to be out there just, you know, if they're playing soccer or whatever on the field. You don't really want to be throwing over next to that or anything. So, um, yeah, not not a lot of people asked me what I was doing. Yeah, nice. I, I just I wondered because uh, the few times uh, I've hit a turf field here i somehow always have someone who comes up and is like what are you doing you can't be here or you know tries to give some sort of crap for it but uh no that that's interesting man so so talk to me a little bit about you know we're training getting better working on distance and starting to play better in tournaments winning some events what kind of led you to decide to go full-time into disc golf and, and join the pro tour kind of talk me through that decision yeah, I, um, so I was working, I think this was, the decision of me going full-time touring happened in 2017, I think, so I was in, like, my third year 
of teaching. And, uh, I mean, everybody knows teachers really don't make a whole lot of money and stuff. And, you know, that is the case. And, um, once what my third teaching year ended, I said I was going to try out like a little mini tour during the summer, uh, and play, I think it was maybe like eight events from, you know, like end of May to like beginning of August. And I said, if I have some success, then I, I'm going to quit teaching and just kind of roll with this. And, um, and I think the beginning of that year is when I landed my first kind of like semi-sponsorship with a company called Fulturn Discs. They were based out of Branson, which is where Table Rock is located. Um, but yeah, it was a uh, one guy who I knew pretty well, and he started this company, and he wanted to expand the Fulturn brand and wanted to sponsor a player who was going to play big events. And he knew my game and knew I was pretty pretty good as far as like the local scene and wanted to take a chance on me um to have somebody in the you know the bigger scene and um so yeah once I had some some financial backing from them and um you know I took that eight week eight week long tour of just kind of a trial tour um and had some success um that's kind of when I decided that I was going to pursue this full-time i i I called it a, a success for me, that little trial tour, and so I, uh, I just decided that I'm going to go for it. While I'm young and don't have kids and don't have many obligations, I just figured, why not? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, absolutely. Seems like a great time to do it and getting that backing. And after those first events and getting that first season under your belt, did you have big sponsorship changes? Did it become easier to go down pro tour? Or did you fully expand and commit full time after that first kind of mini tour? I did commit full time. Um, I didn't go back to teaching. And um, I definitely noticed that... uh, you know, I was committed. I remember hitting all of the, uh, like, the Massachusetts, like Maple Hill and Vermont. I remember going to those tournaments. And uh, I definitely think, like, back then it was probably easier to just kind of drop everything and say I'm going to try it. Um, I feel like the competition nowadays is extremely tough. And plus you have to have, like, a certain rating to even register for the tournaments now. You know, back then it was just kind of anybody can sign up. And... uh you know, the, the competition, even in the last, like, two or three years, is just a huge jump up from, you know, even 2020. And then, you know, looking back to 2017, I think it's an even bigger jump. And so, 
Um, yeah, I would say it was probably easier to like place well um, back in, you know, maybe six years ago when I started. Uh, but the money wasn't what it is today either. And so, you know, uh, when I started, I was doing okay money-wise. And then, you know, the last couple of years since disc golf has boomed, it's it's been comfortable enough to uh, to keep doing. So then with this increased competition and it being more difficult to place well in tournaments, do you see that as a motivator for you? Like, is that, okay, I have to get in and work every single day so I can keep up. You know, I'm someone who's been here for a while. I got to continue to keep my name on the block. Is that kind of your mentality or, or what is your mentality if that's not it? I feel like I've had, you know, the same mentality since I started, which is just, I want to do the best that I can. And, uh, you know, I know that not every single weekend I'm going to play my best, but I know when I do have good tournaments, my name's going to be up there with, you know, the, the top guys who are up there every single weekend. Um, and I think that's just being, uh, I guess, like a little bit realistic with myself, but, you know, it's not like I ever go to a tournament and say, well, I just have no shot. Like, of course, I'm going to try as hard as I can and stuff. Um, there's definitely courses I feel like play to my strengths and then some courses out on tour that are a little bit tougher for me uh, as far as, like, scoring really well and stuff. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a balance. You just got to gotta keep going. And, you know, I'm always motivated to uh, to do the best that I can each and every week. Yeah, absolutely. And let's let's talk a little bit about Discraft. You know, when did Discraft kind of come in on your disc golf journey and just talk a little bit about the experience with them so far? I had talks with Discraft, I want to say mid-2018 with D-Glow is when I first met Bob Julio, who's the team manager. And I was doing, I was placing pretty well um, in the big events in 2018 with my full turn sponsorship, which is a mixed bag you can have like open bag but then also bag some of the their molds and um so the beginning of 2019 i guess technically the end of 2018 i was talking with bob a lot and uh we he ended up taking a chance on me and this was the year that like Macbeth and Eulabari and you know a couple others that uh ended up going to discraft that same year and so Discraft was making a big push in the sport, and I did have offers from, I think, maybe one or two other companies, but I wanted to be with the uh, with Discraft and what they were about to do as far as making a big splash in the sport. Yeah, and how has that decision kind of impacted you in your future? Like, do you see yourself as a lifelong Discraft guy? Like, what is it about Discraft that makes you want to continue to play with them? There's several things. I mean, they, they do take care of me pretty well uh, financially. Um, and then, like, obviously the plastic, I feel like, is probably the best plastic on the market right now. And, you know, Discraft is just very easy to work with. You know, if I have ideas or if I'm placing an order or anything like that, um, super easy to work with. And then we do a lot of team stuff, you know, team dinners. We go to Top Golf. We go to whatever it's it's just a good team and a good environment to be around i like all the players that we have on our team and 
yeah, I'm I'm super happy with this craft. Yeah, I can understand that for sure. Would you say that Discraft has the best team? Like when you look at everyone's skill level and play overall, would you say that if we took like a manufacturer's championship, right, and everyone who plays for Discraft gets points, and would you say that Discraft has the strongest pro team? I will say yes. Um, they also have a very deep team. Um, yeah. you know, if you take like the top three guys from each company, I could see like any company shooting really well. But if you take like the top 15 guys, I feel like Discraft is really deep. I feel like Innova is pretty deep. Um, I feel like those two might stand out, uh, if you're taking, you know, a whole bunch of, whole bunch of players, uh, for some kind of team event. Hey, I think that has been a pretty good discussion, and I, I know we're going to get into a little bit more of that on the bonus podcast, uh, which w- will be on our Patreon, patreon.com backslash chain clinkers. So uh, and you know, we might get back to some of it, but definitely if you want to hear more, make sure you head over there for our bonus episode. Uh, I think we'll, right now we'll go ahead and kind of transition into uh, Andrew's top five things that you have to do if you want to become a more accurate disc golfer. So uh, as Andrew's kind of alluded to on the podcast, you know, very accurate disc golfer good at technical golf hits gaps quite often and we can tell that you have some knowledge around that so we want to hear what are your top five things that players need to be doing that will help them become more accurate so just start off with number five and we'll kind of talk about it and move down okay the list. in no particular order i gotta go check my list here all right so just start with one of them yeah okay so i'll just say Number one is avoid rounding. Okay. Uh, What does rounding look like and how do you avoid that? Sure. So rounding is a term in disc golf when your reach back is technically behind your body. And so when you pull the disc through to throw, you have to basically you're bringing the disc around your body before you release and so not having that straight pull through you're essentially releasing the disc on an arc and so sometimes it might go exactly down the middle but then most of the time it's going to release some angle on that arc which is why you know you might feel like it was an early early release or a a late release um due to that rounding since you have to uh basically bring that disc around your body so avoiding rounding is essentially another way of saying pull back a little bit out and away from your body so that you can pull directly through the uh the power pocket area and you don't have to avoid your body when you pull through gotcha so if i'm understanding correctly rounding it if i were to look at myself from the back so uh my arm would almost be behind my back if I was to round. Correct, yeah. Um, I forget who told me this, but he said a way to picture rounding um, on your very furthest reachback point, if your arm were to disappear and the disc were to stay there, the disc should be able to see the target, the line that you're trying to throw. Mm. If you are rounding, so you reach back 
it's behind your body, your arm disappears, this stays there, your body's going to be blocking the line you're trying to throw. It's maybe Brian Earhart who had that analogy, but I like that analogy. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, what do, what do you got for number four? Okay, the next one I have is to tempo down. Essentially meaning your your footwork and your run-up uh, when trying to throw. Okay. So is this like a overall like slowing everything you're doing down? So instead of the James Conrad sprint, like more of a slow turtle-like walk-up? I would say yes. Um, definitely, you know, tempo down. You're not trying. Usually when you're trying to hit a gap, very rarely are you ever trying to throw it as hard as you can, I would say. Um, you know, like if you have a hallway of trees, the most important thing is to advance down the hallway. You know, even if it's a 400-foot hallway and you advance 200 feet, by tempoing down, that's way better than trying to throw it all 400 feet and missing your line and advancing 30 feet down the fairway. Um, you know, it's just about, I always say like in woods golf, you just got to advance forward. You know, any forward progress is good progress for woods golf. Yeah, and so I know something that I kind of struggle with when I tempo down and I kind of try to slow everything down. I find my discs hyzering out a lot quicker because I'm not able to put that same speed on there. So how can I slow my body down but still give it that same speed to where I would expect my disc to still fly relatively the same? Yeah, so you could either switch to a maybe your next step down in stability, so something slightly less understable where it doesn't require as much power. Or you could just completely switch up to like a mid-range or a putter that flies straighter with less speed. And I th I don't know if that was one of my talking points. That was that was my third talking point is use a slower disc. Um, okay. So yeah, we can kind of just roll with this as, as yeah. my number three, which is, you know, like you were saying, if you're using the high speed stuff, uh, but you're tempoing down, it's going to act even more overstable. And so, you know, you might hit the gap the first 70% of the flight, but then it hyzers into the rough. Um, but yeah, using a, using a mid-range, using a putter, using maybe a slightly flippier disc on a hyzer flip line, you know, that's going to keep the disc in the fairway for majority of the flight. Um, and it's, it's not easy to do. I mean, throwing a straight shot in disc golf is probably the hardest thing to do, is throwing a full flight dead straight shot and you know it it's just uh it just takes a lot of practice and knowing your discs extremely well how they fly yeah and so if you were to give some recommendations like what are maybe some good throwing putters in discrafts lineup throwing putters i throw a jawbreaker focus right now very just neutral throwing putter uh very angle uh sensitive so if i want to throw it on anheuser it just likes to stay on that angle i feel like i'm a pretty good flat disc releaser so um i really like just the neutral discs um if you just kind of have a little baby hyzer natural release then you know maybe i'm trying to think what else maybe like a roach or something would be good um yeah 
honestly, I I haven't even thrown any other putters in Discraft in four years other than a focus in a zone. And everybody oh. knows a zone is overstable, so really the only thing I know is a focus <laughs> for for throwing the, yeah. the straight yeah. shot. And then what's your go-to mid for that straight shot? Obviously a buzz or my my beat-up drone that everybody sees me throw all the time. Um, yeah, the, the buzz is a little bit more of a hyzer flip, and then the drone is something I can uh, just power on and throw it nice and flat, and it's it's beat up enough where it, it goes straight for most of the flight. Gotcha. Okay, so what I'm kind of hearing on this one then, if you're if you're struggling with, well, first off, if you want to be more accurate, you need to slow down. Going really quickly only increases your chance of missing your intended gap or line. But then also along with that, you want to either go to something more neutral to understable or you want to go to a mid or putter because you'll see less of that side-to-side movement. It'll go more straight. You won't see as much of like a hyzer dump earlier in the flight. Gotcha. Okay. I guess one more question on that then. At what point in your game, like is it a certain distance or just how you're feeling? Like, Do you decide to go from understable fairway to mid, mid to putter? Like what, what kind of makes you decide to – Go down. Yeah, so I basically have like a a chart in my head of if it's this distance, it's a putter. If it's this distance, it's a mid. Usually for me, if it's 300 or less, putter. If it's 300 to 360, I feel like I can get a mid there. And if it's anything over 360, probably got to use a fairway driver. Yeah, and that's just something I've I've okay learned um just from playing almost every day for the last 10 years you know it's just something that has developed in my head and i know my distances and know my discs and once i use the range finder and see that it's 350 i know right away i can get a mid there so gotcha and so i guess a little bit maybe a little bit of a distraction here but when you were getting better at disc golf and really practicing every single day to get on the tour and kind of learning these discs, right. And, and learning your distances. At what point did you just kind of continue to trial and error to see how far you could get that putter or was it like, okay, I can only get my putter 200. I'm throwing my distance driver 350 right now. Like, I guess walk me through how you were able to ex- slowly expand those out or was it literally just trial and error? You just kept doing it and doing it. And over time, they just continued to get longer. Um, that's a good question. I, I think I definitely didn't take a very, uh, st- statistical approach when I first started playing as far as like having those distances in my head where I know if it's this distance, it's a putter or a mid, it was just kind of, uh, just kind of whatever felt right maybe a little bit earlier in my career and then you know more of these last uh, maybe two or three years as the courses are getting longer you know you, we don't really have the the short courses anymore and so I feel like I've really taken a uh, an approach to have something 
um, that's in my head where I have these distances and I know, you know, it's putter, mid, fairway driver or whatever. It's, I feel like it's something that just with how the game is growing and these longer courses that keep coming up on tour, we kind of have to, uh, know that. And so, yeah, I, like the beginning of my career, I, I was probably young and dumb, let's say, and just kind of going with the flow and throwing whatever. But, you know, now with the competition getting crazy, you kind of have to have a different mindset and approach to uh, tackling the courses. Do you ever look at what your competition is throwing and then change what you were going to throw or kind of change your game plan? 100%. Yes. I, I will... St- I don't know if other players do this, but I will study what every player is throwing almost every single shot, and I will, like, keep something in my head where I'm like, okay, let's see, uh, Greg Barsby threw this green-looking destroyer on this hole with a headwind, and, you know, it it held up for him. And then, like, we come to a hole five holes later, and he pulls that same disc out. I know that it's, like you know, a pretty overstable disc, and so I want to see the line he throws it on, and then I can kind of compare it to, you know, how I'm going to throw or anything else in my bag. But yeah, definitely, um, especially especially in windy situations. Um, I remember specifically at Waco two days ago on hole 14, which is the one that plays with, like, the fence on the right and the road on the left and the electrical boxes and the, the little... I don't know if that's a fence or those like bars in the middle of it, but we had a big headwind and I know Miles Seaborn was on my card and he was throwing this yellow mid range and it was pretty overstable. And I watched him throw it on his approach shot and I said, I'm going to throw my stable mid range. And that's what I did. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I, I feel like I've heard a lot of different answers. So I'm glad that I was able to kind of pick your brain there because I've definitely heard the camp of, no, you just throw what you throw and don't worry about what anyone else is, is throwing. But I, I feel as though to a certain degree, you have to almost look at it. And I think you're doing it maybe in a different way from how it was presented earlier is you're looking at it more of a, you, from what I'm getting, you kind of have an idea of what you're going to throw already. But then it's, oh, okay, well, I've seen they've thrown this disc and it's done this. And because of this condition, they're throwing it again. So that leads me to, I should pick between this disc and this disc now. Instead of it being like, well, I'm thinking about throwing mid here, but I just saw Paul throw a distance driver. Now I have to throw a distance driver, right? Yeah, it's kind of like I watch somebody throw a disc and then I compare it to what's in my bag. And so, you know, let's say Miles throws this this yellow overstable mid-range, and I'm just like, okay, that's like my blue drone that's, you know, semi-overstable. And then if I watch him throw that disc in a headwind and it flips over and he's like, oh, wow, what the heck? It shouldn't have done that. You know, maybe I stable up from my my semi-overstable drone to my really overstable drone. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, I'm following you on there. I, I have made this argument before on the podcast that, yes, you want to be the first one to throw because that means you got the best score on the last hole. But I do think there are advantages to going later in the lineup because you do get those wind reads. I do you, could you ever see 
the pro tour switching up the format to where whoever did the best on the whole prior throws last in its reverse order. So whoever's doing better gets those win reads. Could you ever see that happening? Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. I can feel I it can feel like, you know, right now you get the box and it's like, "Oh, yes, that is a good point in my round where then if it's the opposite and you get the box, like, I literally I got to get out of the box. I cannot continue to throw first every single time. Okay, cool. Well, hey, let's get back to what is number two on your list. All right, so we have run up the direction that you want to throw. That is, um, that's something that I feel like I have adopted the last couple of years as I've started to gravitate towards being a woods player, is that if I'm throwing on like a baby Anheuser, um... I go from, like, the right side of the tee box to throwing, eventually my release is in the center of the tee box just because it's that Anheuser line where I want to start it out left and drift it to the right. If I'm throwing dead straight, I basically start in the back of the tee pad and run up directly straight and then for a hyzer left to right. Okay, so with that running in the direction that you want to throw... That makes sense to me, but I guess a question I have on that is how can you ensure you get the same hip rotation? Because I feel like for me, and something that I have been told a lot is you almost want to take an angle at wherever you're going to have your plant foot so that way you can have more hip rotation. So let's take this dead center uh -huh. shot, for example. If you're just running up directly straight – what are you doing to ensure you still get the same amount of hip rotation and spin on your on your plant foot? I feel like for me that the sh the throw is the exact same. I'm not I feel like I'm not putting any different amount of hip rotation or anything else in the throw. It's essentially it's essentially I'm doing the exact same throw but then I'm just kind of lining the direction I want to throw. I don't know. I I know that my form is a lot different than other people's because I don't really even rotate my shoulders super far back. And I feel like that might be another reason why I hit gaps pretty well is because I don't have the huge, big reach back. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I might be a, a different, you know, throwing style than a lot of other players. Um, I just feel like I throw the exact same way, but it's just a different angle to the to the shot that I'm approaching it. Gotcha. So, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, and, you know, it's good to have different styles, different throwing techniques and forms to hear all those kinds of points. So, to me, it sounds as though you're still – you're doing exactly – exact same it doesn't matter uh -huh. where that plant foot is and you're lining your body up everything's the exact same you're just instead of hit always hitting the 
upper left hand corner ish of the T pad. It could be okay. center. It could be the right side of the T pad, depending yep. on how you want that shot shape to go. Exactly. Something that I've seen a lot of players do is they'll try to throw that Anheuser and then they'll get grip lock and just send it into the next dimension or it'll be a cut roller or something like that. How are you able to avoid doing that when really lining yourself up for that Anheuser shot and going for it? So with my my throws being all the exact same, it's that reaching out from my body so that I don't have to round and then it's just pulling on that dead straight line. And so I feel like when I start from the back right of the tee box and I move towards the left of the tee box, that's kind of setting up my Anheuser line where if I just basically throw how I always throw, it's going to come out on, you know, maybe not the disc angle on an Anheuser line, but it's going, I'm throwing the direction for an Anheuser to move left to right um, and then as I'm pulling through, you know, adjusting my wrist just slightly is how I'll get the disc on the Anheuser angle. But as far as just the actual line itself, just starting right to left is what gets me on the line that I want to throw the disc, if that gotcha. makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I guess uh, when you're like your aiming point, is it more this is really hard to do without being able to show you like what I'm talking about. But if, if let's take the T box, for example, and you're throwing an Anheuser Enough. and just imagine it going straight up and down. It's just like a, a, a vortex. You've got the left side, you've got the middle and you have the right side. When you're throwing that Anheuser shot, are you having that aimed at the left side on the left side of the box, forcing it to move to the right? Or is it, I'm aiming on the right side of the box and having it continue to go right. Uh, I'm trying to understand. So to me, from it sounded like the first one where I'm starting it out left and then kind yeah. of forcing it to go right. Is that what you were? Yeah, because like, when I think of throwing a big Anheuser, I guess I'm thinking of everything's kind of coming out the exact same. But instead, like my hit point is still the same place. Instead, I'm just focused a lot more on almost forcing the disc to go to the right instead of just letting it naturally happen through like a hyzer flip or something like that. Okay. Yeah. So I, I feel like I very rarely will like force a disc to like go right. It's more of a uh, picking the right disc and then throwing it on just, like, a touch of Anheuser and then letting mm. the disc do the work instead of me kind of, like, forcing it. Um, but it's all in the shop, shot shape, too. I mean, there's there's some times where you just got to force an Anheuser immediately out of the hand. and um, But, yeah, just that, that slow panning, you know, left to right Anheuser shot that a lot of people try to throw. It's definitely, I'm throwing it uh, just on that, touch of Anheuser uh, angle, the disc angle just on a touch of Anheuser with uh, with my disc line going left of the T-fad right to left. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it sounds like to me, it's better if you want to throw an Anheuser to just get something significantly or more understable than what you're thinking and just slightly kind of change your angle to be a tick of Anheuser instead of trying to keep that same overstable disc. Like, you know, let's take a, a Zeus, for example, taking a Zeus and instead of really trying to yank on it and force it to go to the right in Anheuser instead, pick something a little bit more understable, like maybe like a Nuke SS, Crank SS, something like that, and just slightly kind of tweaking your angle. Yeah, and like the faster disc speed you get, the harder it is to throw a proper Anheuser. So I throw a lot of Anheusers with like my buzzes, and lately I've been doing like an Onyx, like a kind of a little bit straighter Onyx, which is a 10 speed. Um, but I mean, I do have the high speed flippy stuff and it is difficult to land it to get that full pan. Cause like a lot of times being a high speed disc, it'll either flex out or you will anhyzer it too much and it's going to catch that sharp edge and cut roll. Um, so I definitely try to stay in the, uh, like the control driver speed at most when throwing the turnovers. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think that's something I've heard before, but it makes sense with a lot of what we've discussed on this episode of, you know, tempo, slowing your body down, the Anheuser shot, you take that step back, don't throw that distance driver, take the step back, it'll be easier for you to throw that shot and mm-hmm. hit that angle, and yeah, all that makes sense. Okay, I'm excited. What do we have for number one on the list? So yeah, the last one, let me go back to my list here, we have... Okay, so aim for a target further than aim for a target further down the fairway than just the gap you're trying to hit. And this might be a little bit more hang on. Try to there you go. This one might be a little bit more of like an advanced skill um because if you're a beginner maybe your first thought is just hit the gap. Um but yeah, like for me, I feel like I can hit gaps so well now that I'm not even worried about the first one. The first gap that's 100 feet off the tee and 20 feet wide, like I'm essentially looking past that and looking where do I want the disc to land instead of where do I need to like throw this disc to hit the gap. And I feel like that is definitely something that's helped me. It's kind of like the the aim small, miss small mindset where if you aim for Mm -hmm. something you know, straight down the fairway, you know, 400 feet, then, you know, if you're good at hitting your lines and your gaps, then that gap that's 100 feet off the tee really shouldn't even come into play in your head. Yeah, okay. I feel like this is something that probably a lot of beginners struggle with because they are only seeing that first gap 50 feet off the tee or whatever it is, and oh, I, I just hope I get past this one, and whatever happens next, we'll figure it out when we get there uh-huh. kind of mentality where if you're not even thinking about that gap and you get past it, you're worried about where you want that disc to land, what's the second gap that you have to hit? Because also, this has got to play into some sort of mental factor as well. Of If you're focused on that first gap, wouldn't you have a higher likelihood of hitting that tree that's stopping you from getting through that first gap? I definitely think so. Like playing courses like W.R. Jackson, which is Champions Cup course, there's so many times where there will be a, you know, an initial gap to hit and then a tree 300 feet down the fairway 
And I'm just like, okay, aim for the tree, and surely you're not going to hit the tree. Like, you'll miss left or right of the tree. And, you know, sometimes you hit the tree, and you're just like, wow, I'm that accurate. But then, you know, sometimes you'll miss left and right, and that's kind of that's kind of the point of picking something further down than just the initial gap. And, you know, you're not even thinking about the early gap. Yeah, I really like that one because I definitely can see how you start putting those negative thoughts in your head of, well, I have to hit this gap, and then you hit the gap. And if you're not thinking about the gap, you're thinking about the next gap, and you happen to catch the first gap, oh, well, we'll figure it out then. But I feel like that's a better mentality to have compared to just being like, well, I got to get through this first one, and then whatever happens, I hope it's good because it could also be bad. <laughs> yeah, and that, it's definitely more of an advanced skill. Um, if you're playing the lower level, sometimes just hitting the first gap, you're going to gain strokes on your card. And so that's true. if that's the level you're at, you know, maybe you don't think about this fifth tip until you're further along in your career. So that's true. That's a really good shout. And if you're looking to gain those strokes on your card and continue to improve your disc golf game, I highly recommend subscribing to the podcast right now. We've got other fantastic interviews with pros on the channel teaching you how to become a better disc golfer. We're going to go another 10, 15 minutes with Andrew over on our Patreon, patreon.com backslash chain clinkers. So if, if you're interested in listening to more of this discussion, make sure you head over there as well as another bonus perk. We've got our OTB discs giveaways every single month. You could win four discs over there just by supporting so definitely check that out and if you're interested in learning more about andrew where can the people follow and connect with you andrew yeah so you can follow my instagram it's just prez17 i believe or maybe prez017 i think it's prez017 and then i have facebook and then also have a twitter um everything is either prez017 or prez17 i've kind of lost track of which one's which but i'm sure if you just search my name twitter instagram i should pop up awesome well there you go thank you andrew for joining us on today's episode of the podcast and if you missed last week's episode make sure you go check it out right now we give you our top 10 disc golf deal breakers 10 things you shouldn't do so if you enjoyed this discussion we know you'll like that one so go ahead and check it out and we will see you guys next week 